0: To do a study through the book of Romans, and when I say this, I mean this is a difficult challenge, and I trust that it will be a blessing, and I hope that the Lord will lead us as we go through it. The book of Romans is about the gospel, which there's no greater message than the gospel, I'm sorry. I I could stand up here and I could share with you for the rest of my life the story of the gospel. It would thrill my soul. The book of Romans is a treatise. It's exactly what it is, a treatise of the gospel. And you might say, what does the word treatise mean? I looked it up. It is a systematic exposition of salvation by grace through faith alone in Jesus Christ with supporting evidence and a rational conclusion. So, I'm going to be sharing with you a lot about the gospel. I want to start by defining this word, gospel. You know that it simply means good news. It is a message of good news, but it's much deeper than that. The word gospel is used in the book of Romans 60 times. That's a lot. So it's the main focus of the book. But the word gospel has a historical context that we don't really get today because of the modern age that we live in. But let me explain this to you. So back hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years ago, when they had no newspaper, and they had no television, and they had no internet, they would literally hire people to be a communicator. And those people were called heralds. That's why some of your newspapers are called the Chronicle Herald, okay? And the word gospel was a good news message from the emperor, that's the historical context. And, and people would literally go into the towns and the villages and they would find a, a prominent location and they would stand up and they would announce a message from the emperor. It was an announcement from the very top. Well, let me tell you. The gospel is not a message from the emperor. And thank God it's not a message from our prime minister. The gospel is a message from the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. The one that we just sang about. And it is a message of good news that relates to every single person in the world. All humanity can benefit from this good news message from God. I've tried to discipline myself to write a summary of what the gospel is in the book of Romans, and this is the best that I came up with. It's a concise summary of what the gospel is, and it says this. The gospel of God is good news, and here's the good news. God will forgive your sins, and he will deliver you from the power of sin and also from the penalty of sin, which is death. We're going to see that through the book of Romans. And God will give you the gift of righteousness, and it is a gift, cannot be earned, on the basis of grace, through faith, when you believe in Jesus Christ, his son, who died for your sins on the cross, and rose again to give you eternal life. That is a summary statement of the gospel. And I thought Unime was going to steal my sermon when he started talking about the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The gospel. I want to... Invite you to turn to Romans chapter 1, and I'd like to read a portion of this amazing chapter with you today. Romans chapter 1, and verse 1, I'm reading from the ESV, and I'm going to read the first eight verses, and then we're going to drop down to verse 14, and we're going to read to the end of the chapter. See if you can take this in. This is a message from God. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David, according to the flesh, and declared to be the son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ for all those that are in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. Grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in the world. Now, if you drop down to verse 14 you're going to begin to feel Paul's passion. He says in verse 14, I am, if you're reading to King James, it says I am a debtor. But the ESV says I am under obligation both to the Greeks and the barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. And then this amazing verse For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. For in it, that is in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written. The righteous, or the just, shall live by faith. Quoted three times in the Bible. Then it says, for the wrath of God, not just the righteousness of God, but the righteous wrath of God that's connected to justice is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness, Suppress the truth, for what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has showed it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So, they are without excuse." Now, this next section is a very difficult section to read, and I want to start by saying this, this is not my opinion, this is not the opinion of this church, this is the holy inspired word of God, and it's very relevant to the day and age in which we live. I'd like to read it together. It says, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God, or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God "...for images resembling mortal men, birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their own hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie." And worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever, amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. The King James says, lusts. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty of their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, they are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's decree, and those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Those are very strong words, and they are words that come from the holy inspired Word of God, the gospel. Paul wrote this epistle, likely in the winter of A.D. 57 to 58, and he wrote it from Corinth. And we know that from 1 Corinthians 16 and 6. We know that from Romans 16 and 23, Gaius was his host, and the church was in his house in Corinth. And Paul sent this letter by Phoebe, we get that in Romans 16 and 1, who was from Sancria, which was a suburb of Corinth. Romans 1 and 13 says that Paul tried to visit Rome on numerous occasions but was prevented by the providence of God. And as a result, we have this incredible book, the book of Romans. It's a masterpiece of the gospel of God. Could you imagine if Paul had a got to Rome and gave all of this verbally or orally and and we didn't have it? We have a masterpiece in writing of the treaties of the gospel. Paul was absolutely consumed by this message. Totally consumed. It's all he lived for. It really is. You can see that from the first couple of verses in in the book. Paul was convicted by truth. Why? Because he had an experience with God. Can I ask you a question today? Have you ever had an experience with God? Have you ever been convicted by truth? Have you ever had to face reality? Well, if you haven't, up until this point in your life, I'm hoping that this study on the book of Romans will bring you to face truth. And if you have, rejoice in the grace of God, the mercy that God has outpoured to all of us who believe. Paul met God, and he had a crazy, amazing experience on the Damascus Road, Acts chapter 9. He was shocked by the risen Christ. He was struck down. And... He turned to God in deep repentance and surrendered the rest of his life to Jesus Christ. And it happened in an instant. And as a result, he was incredibly convicted to live the rest of his days for the gospel. He wrote this book. And I want to share with you in in this message an overview of the book. And I want to pick up on two things in chapter 1, That I think are critically important. And what I've done here is I've put my notes up here so you can see where I'm going. I've said before that the book of Romans is a legal treatise on the doctrine of the gospel. There's some key amazing points that Paul makes in this book. First thing I want to pick up on is he makes this statement there is only one God. He is the same God to the Jews as to the Gentiles. And you get that in chapter 3 and verse 30. Is he the God of the Jews only? No. He is the God of the Gentiles. He's the God of the entire world. There's only one God. Then he states categorically that all humanity, the entire world, is guilty That is a sweeping statement. He says it in chapter three and verse 19, that every mouth may be stopped and the entire world become guilty before God. He says it in chapter three and 23, all have sinned and fall short of the standard of the glory of God. Then he makes this amazing statement in chapter two that with God, there is no respect of persons. There is no respect of persons. Whether you are religious, whether you are attached to one type of religion or another type of religion, or whether you are agnostic, atheist, heathen, pleasure living, and don't even regard God. This book makes it abundantly clear that there's no respect to persons with God. And salvation is offered by grace, alone and through faith alone. And we get that from chapter 3 and verse 28. It says in 3 and 28, therefore we conclude that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by grace a man can never be justified before God by being a good neighbor, by being baptized, by living your life without swearing or trying to help your neighbor or trying to be a good person or going to church. A man can never be justified by works. And this amazing epistle says that when a person believes God, his faith is counted for righteousness. That's amazing. When a person believes God, his faith is counted for righteousness. I love that because I could never ever work enough to do anything to merit favor before God because I'm a sinner. It is faith alone And it is by grace alone that a person can be justified before God. This book also states categorically that we as humanity are helpless. We are helpless. We are without strength. We are ungodly. As godly as you may think you are, this book says you are ungodly. And those are hard things for all of us to look at and and to face and to consider. But here's the amazing truth of the gospel. When we were helpless, when we were ungodly, when we were in that condition, Christ died for us sinners. And he took our place on the cross as a substitute for guilty sinners. He bore the wrath of Almighty God for my sin and for yours so that we could be given the gift of righteousness by believing what God says. Can I ask you a question today? Are you righteous? Do you believe God? The only righteousness that anyone here has is the gift of righteousness that comes by faith when you believe God. I've stated here, and I want to go over this, righteousness that comes from God is first of all, undeserved. It is undeserved. And that's what the Bible says in this book. It's actually a gift. Righteousness that comes from God is unmerited, It can't be earned. Titus 3 says, not by works of righteousness that we have done, but according to his mercy, which we don't deserve, he saved us. And here's probably the hardest one to swallow. It is impossible for us to be right with God through anything that we can do other than simply believing what God says. There's nothing that we can do in our lives that can merit favor with God. You know, um, when I think of the righteousness that God gives, it really is a gift. And I thought of something that I'd like to show you to illustrate this. When a person comes to Christ and believes this book, their faith is counted for righteousness and God takes his righteousness and literally puts it on him. Okay? And there's a verse in Isaiah 61 that I think is absolutely beautiful. This is what it says. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation, and he has covered me with a robe of righteousness. You see, if you really knew me, and if I really knew you, not just what you see on the outside, but what we really are on the inside, I think we would be all horrified. But God has clothed me with a garment of salvation. And it is a gift. And I am covered by his righteousness. And it looks like this. You probably wonder why I brought my coat up here. When I get saved, I'm wearing a black shirt. Symbolic of the sinfulness of my heart. And when I got saved by simply believing God at the cross, Jesus died for me, and I believe that, God puts a coat on me. And now you can't see my black shirt. I am covered in a garment of salvation that God gives to me when I believe God. And it's his garment of salvation. It is his righteousness. And he gives it to me as a gift. And so when God looks down on me, he sees me cleansed by the blood of Christ. And so I can sing, boldly, I approach your throne. Blameless. Now I'm running home. By your blood I come, cleansed by the precious blood of Christ. There's no more condemnation. There's no more sin. He's put an end to it. It's gone. And I am seen in Christ. And so this garment of salvation is what Paul talks about in this book when he says, put on Jesus Christ. Put him on. It's done by faith. By believing God. There are major doctrinal themes in this book that I want to briefly overview. Major doctrinal themes through the book of Romans. These are things that Paul brings out so articulately. Right at the very beginning of the book, he brings out universal depravity. It is the corruption of all humanity. Religious Jew, non-religious Gentile, enlightened, unenlightened, agnostic, atheist, all the same. Universal depravity. And then the gospel actually reveals the wrath of God the justice of a holy and righteous God against sinful humanity. And it brings out the amazing righteousness of God that he offers in salvation, just like that coat that I just put on. If you're not saved here today and and you're exposed to God in all your sin, you can walk out of here with a garment of salvation on cleansed by the precious blood of Christ and declared righteous with God by believing what God said. That's it. The great truth of justification by faith alone, through Christ alone, through grace alone, apart from works. This is an amazing truth. How profound is this truth? Ask Martin Luther. Did it change his life? Did it change the direction and history of the church? It absolutely did. When Martin Luther did a study on the book of Romans, it changed the direction of his life and the direction of the church, and it changed history. And so I invite you all to come with me through this study of the book of Romans and let it change your life. Let it change your outlook. Let it change your destination eternally, and let it change your history by believing God. It's a book that teaches the great truth of justification by faith alone through grace. It's also a book that really delves into the subject of redemption, substitutionary atonement in Christ Jesus. We, we actually thought a lot about that this morning at our breaking of bread. Verses that were read in Ephesians chapter 1. That it is through his blood we are redeemed and we are forgiven. The price that he paid is the basis that God can give me this garment of salvation. Because he paid for my sin. That's amazing truth. This book also discusses in detail The security of our salvation. It it delves into the difference between two federal heads in Adam and in Christ. Where would you rather be? In Christ, we are secure, we have the gift of righteousness. In Adam, we're under the condemnation of sin. But when we trust Christ as our savior, we come out of Adam and we are put into Christ Jesus. Amazing fundamental truth. This book deals with sanctification, which is God's will for all believers. It may surprise you, after you get saved, you actually still sin. And you still wrestle with sin. You hate it, you don't like it because you know it's wrong, but you have temptation and you're driven towards sin. And sanctification is a process that God brings believers through and we're gonna look at it when we get to chapter six. This book actually brings out a lot of truth about the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Chapter eight talks about the adoption of sonship, where we became children of God. No longer children of the devil. <laughs> Where would you rather be? Children of the devil or children of God? This is amazing truth. It changes everything. He also deals with sovereign election and the sovereignty of God. And in chapter 9, 10, and 11, it's a parenthesis about the nation of Israel. And he says, Has God cast away his people? God forbid. There's a future for Israel. And God is going to bring about his sovereign election to that nation. And he also goes into election individually. He also talks about spiritual gifts and the opportunity to serve in the body. He talks about practical Christianity. And he talks about Christian liberty. Of all the issues of conscience, when we get to chapter 14, that we have Christian liberty to to make decisions on things. Outline of the book is simply this. Chapter one to eight is all doctrinal. Chapter nine to 11 is dispensational. And chapter 12 to 16 is practical. You could write over the book of Romans three words. Here's a summary of the book of Romans. Ruin, redemption, and responsibility. We are ruined by our sin No further evidence is needed. If you do an honest assessment of your own heart, it will relate. We are all ruined. Our redemption is the work of Christ. And he says, in this amazing verse, maybe one of the most profound verses in the whole book, 3 and 24, he says, being justified freely by his grace through redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Our responsibility? You have a responsibility? Yes, you do. Your responsibility is to believe God. Acts chapter 17, Paul said in Athens, he said, God now commands all men everywhere to repent because he has appointed a day when he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he has ordained and has given assurance unto all that he raised him from the dead. We have a responsibility to repent of our sin and believe God for salvation. Let me give you another quick summary of the book. Chapter one is the corrupt man. Includes all of us. Chapter two is the inexcusable man. There's no excuse. Chapter three is like a court scene where all humanity is brought before the bar of God, and it says there's none righteous. No, not one, none that seek after God. None that understand, all together are corrupt. The guilty man. I love it when we get to chapter four. Maybe David McDonald's favorite passage. It says, We are justified, forgiven. His faith is counted for righteousness. Chapter five, therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, the justified man. Chapter six, The sanctified man. Chapter seven, the wretched man. Oh, wretched man that I am. When I would do good, evil is present with me. What I hate, I do. How is this? There's a battle going on. Oh, wretched man that I am. Who shall deliver me? I thank God, Jesus Christ, my Lord, he will deliver me. And then there's the liberated man. We get into chapter eight. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. We, we, are, we are liberated. There's no more condemnation. We're the children of God. And then we get to chapter 12 and we have the devoted man. After Paul builds this entire thesis of the gospel, this compelling message that all humanity can relate to, he says, Therefore, brethren, I beseech you by the mercies of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service, and be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may be able to prove what is that good and holy and acceptable will of God, the devoted man. Righteousness in this book is revealed in the gospel. Righteousness is received by faith, not of works. And righteousness is actually rejected by those who suppress truth. Righteousness is rejected by those who suppress truth. Righteousness is impossible on our own. Righteousness is imperative. If you don't have the righteousness of God on, when you die, you are gonna be exposed to the wrath of God in your sin, and you will perish eternally. Righteousness is unattainable by the law, but here, get this. Righteousness is imputed by faith. I love that. That's an accounting term where God actually gives me credit. Me? Me? Credit? Yeah. When I believe God, he takes the work of Christ and he gives me credit by believing God. Beautiful. Salvation has three aspects, and I want to lay this out for you. Salvation is, first of all, a mental understanding of truth. So if this has never been communicated to you, You are going to have a hard time comprehending this. But the Bible and Christians communicate the truth of God. Sometimes we write it on a little card, and we give it out to a whole bunch of people. It's communicating truth, okay? Salvation is to have a mental understanding. I am a sinner. Christ died for me. When I believe God, he gives me salvation, But there's an emotional aspect to salvation where I can't just absorb this intellectually. This needs to have a personal impact on my life. There needs to be a personal association and acceptance of this truth that I am the sinner. Christ died for me personally, and by accepting him, my sin is forgiven. And as a result, I am thankful to God. I am grateful. I am filled with gratitude that God sent his son to die for me. Do you have gratitude in your heart that Jesus Christ died for you personally on the cross? I hope you do. There's one more aspect of salvation. It is my will. There is a will that God has given to every one of us. A a, Free will, we call it sometimes. We can either choose to accept this amazing message from God and be saved by the grace of God, or we can say, Yeah, I understand what God's saying. I don't want it. I will not have this man to reign over me. That's a deliberate choice that some people make. It's a bad choice, it has consequences, but some people make that choice. But those of us that are saved, our will is involved when we joyfully receive Christ. Just like Zacchaeus. He came down and he joyfully received Christ into his house. Have you joyfully received Christ as your Savior and as your Lord? And are you willing to submit and surrender your life to the Lordship of Christ? So, The mind is involved, the emotion is involved, and the will is involved in salvation. I want to share with you these two verses that I think are the great summary of the gospel of this book. And I really think that this is kind of like a crystallized message of the book of Romans, Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes. For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. And then verse 18 says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth. That's a summary of Paul's message. Now, there's two points in particular that I'd like to carefully go over with you about chapter 1. So, chapter 1 has two major points in it. Number 1, the power of the gospel. That is the first point in chapter 1. And secondly, the peril of those who suppress truth. The power of the gospel and the peril of those who suppress truth. I'd like to start with the peril of those who suppress truth. Now, we read a very unpopular, difficult passage in the last part of Romans chapter one. And this is what I think is a summary of what God says. It's not my opinion, it's not the opinions of this church, but the scripture says in Romans chapter one, that those who suppress truth have chosen to worship the creature rather than the creator. That's a deliberate choice that some people make. They say, there is no God for me. I am my own God. They say, no one's going to tell me how to live. I'm going to do my own thing. And this is rampant in the world that we live in right now. They worship the creature rather than the creator. And, And then there's a further step that they take. They become corrupt in their thinking, and they are full of pride. Pride is an awful thing. Pride sets up men for a fall. Do you remember what happened back in the garden? And Satan said, uh, you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And Satan actually was Lucifer who fell from heaven because he had pride in his heart that he was going to be like the most high God. The peril of those who suppress truth, they worship the creature rather than the creator, they are corrupted in their thinking, they are full of pride, and eventually they are given up to the lust of their own hearts, to immorality, to dishonoring their own bodies. That's a very, very sad commentary of what the scripture says about those who suppress truth and have walked away from God. They become addicted to sin, and they are on a road that literally ends in destruction. The end of that road of a life without God, the end of a road of those who suppress truth and reject God, is a road that leads to eternal death. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. When I was a young person, one, my father taught me a lot of things, but one thing my father taught me that I never forgot, and he said this, son, when you choose a road, you choose the end of that road. When we choose to go down a road, we're choosing where the road leads to. We're choosing the end of that road, which is the consequences for sin. And so Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7 and verse 13, Enter you in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many there be that go in thereat. Because straight is the gate and narrow is the way that leads to life, and few there be that find it. If you're following Jesus Christ today and if you have accepted the word of God as truth and trusted in Jesus Christ as your savior, you are on a narrow road leading to life, leading to heaven, leading to joy, leading to glory, which is better than you deserve. Amazing, by the grace of God, those of us who are saved have chosen a road that leads to life those that reject God, those that suppress truth, those that worship the creature rather than the creator have chosen a pathway that leads to destruction. And that's simply what the word of God says. But I want to end on a very, very positive note. Uh, The gospel is the power of God and it, it leads to life. The gospel carries with it the omnipotent power of God. The, the the literal word for power is our English word dynamite. And really what it is, this is an explosive message. If you believe this message, it will change everything. The message of the gospel, some people don't like it. And if you want to see that in a living color, come out with us some Friday night. Some people don't like it. You know why? Because it convicts of sin. And it's like a sword that pierces the heart. It's also like a mirror. That, that the gospel holds up to mankind what he is. And it also shows the amazing grace of God, the righteousness of God, and the unrighteousness of man. And, and given the positive effect of the gospel, it brings repentance and faith in Jesus Christ to every believer. And the gospel, it gives life. Abundant life. Everlasting life. The gospel gives a new birth. Born of incorruptible seed by the living word of God. You know, there are people that have believed this message and their entire life is totally changed. Let me give you a Two quick examples. One is the writer of this book. The Apostle Paul. We heard a couple of weeks ago, about was it five unlikely conversions? The Apostle Paul was one of them. Here's Saul of Tarsus. He's a religious Jew. He's a Pharisee. He's a blasphemer. This is on his resume. This is how he lived his life. He is a hater of Christians. He is injurious. He is a murderer. He's rebellious and he's running from God and he's trying to persecute Christians and tie them up and put them in prison and beat them. And God stops him. And all of a sudden, everything radically changed. Tell me, do you think this message is powerful? It'll change your entire life. It'll change everything for you if you believe it. Absolutely everything. It changed the apostle Paul. I want to share with you, as I close, this really interesting story, and then we're going to sing. Um, I want to sing Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound, That Saved a Wretch Like Me. Um, But before we sing that, I want to tell you a story about a man called John Newton, John Newton was born July 24th, 1725. His mother was a godly Christian that knew God and walked with God and prayed daily for him. His father was a hardened atheist who was a sea captain who lived a prolific life of ungodliness. Elizabeth Newton took John Newton to church up until he was seven years old. And he heard the gospel, and he sang the songs of Zion. His mother died when he was seven years old. And at 11, he was taken by his father to sea. And he learned a life of debauchery at sea. When he was 18, he joined the Navy. He deserted from the Royal Navy, was arrested publicly stripped, flogged, degraded, and beaten in the streets. He was so angry that he determined that he was gonna get a gun and he was gonna kill um, his sea captain and then he was gonna commit suicide. God prevented him from doing that and he got on a ship that sailed to West Africa. When he got to West Africa, it went downhill from there. He actually became a prisoner Um, and was tormented in prison. And finally, he broke free and got out of prison, got on a ship that was uh, going back and forth to America as a slave trader. And he learned the awful trade of trading slaves, and he did some horrific things, absolutely unmentionable things. And he had lived all of this time without God, but he never forgot what his mother told him and what he learned at church when he was six years old. He was in the middle of the Atlantic on a ship called the Greyhound, bound for England, and in his cabin, somebody gave him a book to read of the great day of judgment of the wrath of God. And he picked it up and started reading it. He threw it down, blasphemed God, and said it wasn't true. And within 24 hours, that ship that he was on shipwrecked. And it was a wild and crazy storm, and every single piece of that ship came into parts, and he clung to one part of the the wreck in the North Atlantic, begging God to save him begging God to save him, and he started to name his sins before God. And he said, oh God, I am a wretch. I am an ungodly wretch. I deserve to die. Please save me. Remarkably, God saved him by the grace of God, through faith in Jesus Christ. And he lived the rest of his life to preach the gospel. You can visit his tombstone today in the city of London. And this is what it says. John Newton, once an infidel, a libertine, a servant of slaves in Africa, he was by the rich mercy of God and our Savior Jesus Christ preserved, restored, pardoned and appointed to preach the faith that he long labored to destroy. The power of the gospel. The gospel changes lives, and I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. I'm going to pray quickly, and then we can sing. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Father, we thank you today for the grace of God. We thank you for salvation. We thank you for the rich word of God that so expressly shows us our need, the filthiness of our own heart, and the fullness of Jesus Christ. And we thank you, Lord, that you have brought us to the cross, where we have accepted Jesus as our Savior, and we're saved by your grace through faith, and we thank you that many, many lives here have been changed. I pray that if there's anyone that has heard this message today that's not changed, that they would... Accept the gospel and rejoice in the joy of sins forgiven. Bless us today as we part and as we sing this hymn. In Jesus' name, amen.